Okay, so I think the best way to start is to start in prayer. Um, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And we're going to use this prayer you have right here. All together. God our Father, the beauty and the order of your creation was willfully damaged by those who rejected your friendship. Undeterred by this ingratitude, your Son entered our world on a mission of mercy and healing. He walked among us as a divine physician, seeking the lost and the strayed, curing the sick and the handicapped, mending broken hearts and restoring broken friendships, comforting the distressed and bringing peace of mind to the victims of sin. With the exception of sin, he too was the victim of suffering and anxiety. He knew fatigue and hunger and loneliness. In taking flesh and blood from the children of Eve, he honored Mary and Anne as mother and grandmother. From them he inherited eyes that beheld the ills of man and hands, which constantly reach out to bring healing to mind and body. In this novena of prayer dedicated to St. Anne, the friend of the sick, we ask her intercession to strengthen our faith that miracles of healing may continue. The compassionate Jesus still walks among us. We ask him to bless us today and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for coming. Please come in. There are chairs in the middle, right back there. Okay. Okay, so just to give you a, a small, short, brief summary of what we're going to be doing today, I'm going to give you an introduction of who St. Anne is um, by name and how we honor devotions to her and who she's the patroness of and important feasts and just kind of the background of her. And then I will also talk about later, at the end of the talk, devotions to St. Anne and how she's personally interceded for me in a small way recently. And, but after I give the beginning part of that, Caitlin will talk about art depicting the iconography of St. Anne and how that's developed over time, as well as we'll do a brief art history exercise. And then Susie, who, so Caitlin drew this painting, and then Susie framed it this, uh, by Goldleaf Studios, a very internationally and nationally well-known framer, um, and she'll talk about why she chose this frame, and each part of it has meaning. It's a really great uh, story. So just to start, so you have this cheat sheet that has St. Anne's picture on it. Um, Anne is the way that we know Anne's name to be written, A-N-N. But also in the in Canada, France, and England, it's spelled with an E at the end. It means, so if you see St. Anne spelled that way, it's not a different Anne, it's the same Anne, it's just written in Canada, France, and England that way. Anna, with A-N-N-A, is how it's written in the Gospel of James, the non-biblical Gospel of James. So that's not in the Bible that you have at your house, the Gospel of James. It's it's a called part of the Apocrypha. So... That is also called the Pro-Evangelium of James. So basically, it's not in the Bible, but it is still something we can reference. And that is the only book, gospel, text that references Anne. And so that's how we know her story. And Anna also is Hannah in Hebrew, which means grace. So that's where her name came from. So who is she? She's the mother of Je- or, I'm sorry, the grandmother of Jesus. 
She's the mother of Mary, and she's the wife of St. Joachim, who Monsignor mentioned in today's homily. And she is patroness of grandmothers, and of Canada, and of Brittany, France. And I'll talk about each of the devotions in Canada and in Brittany, France later. But first, just to give the background of her short story, what we do know, which is only from this Gospel of James that's not part of the Bible that we have at our houses, but it is something we can reference. There are three parts to the Gospel of James. The first talks about the miraculous birth of Mary. So a quote from that part, um, this was after Anna was infertile for 20 years with her husband Joachim. An angel appeared to her. Suddenly an angel of the Lord stood in front of her saying, Anna, Anna, the Lord God has heard your prayer. You will conceive and give birth, and your child will be spoken of everywhere people live. So it's a really beautiful text. And then the second part of James talks about Mary when she is about 12 years old and her, her younger life. Come on in. There, there's seats in the middle back there. And then the third part of James relates to the nativity of Jesus. So that's what the book of James tells us. So St. Anne, she was born in Bethlehem, and she married Joachim, and he's a shepherd from Nazareth in Galilee. So that's what this this map has been here for, to show you just kind of the distance between where each of them is from. Um, And I guess, can you zoom out a little bit just so we can get a perspective? Because I know sometimes we always mention Bethlehem and, and Nazareth, and sometimes we don't necessarily have a conception of where exactly that is. So that gives you an idea of where in modern day, present day world, that is located. So she, Anne, was from Bethlehem, and Joachim was from Nazareth. So Bethlehem, Nazareth. So after 20 years of marriage, they had no children, and Joachim was the first to go into the desert and plead with God, because he was actually being teased by his contemporaries, by his neighbors. You guys have no kids. How come? And so he went fasting and praying and fasting in the desert, and an angel appeared to him, saying he and Anne would conceive, and they would name the child Mary, and she was to be devoted to God. And Anne, at the same time, had the same vision in another location of an angel saying to her, after she was praying and and lamenting not having a child, you will conceive a child and name her Mary, and she will be dedicated to God. You must dedicate her to God. So then Mary was born, and we celebrate that feast The Immaculate Conception is December 8th, so when Mary is conceived, free of original sin, so the common misconception, the Immaculate Conception, is about Mary, her conception, by Anne, the feast celebrated on December 8th. And then when Mary is born, that's celebrated on September 8th, on your cheat sheet there, that is her nativity. And then finally, the third important feast we celebrate surrounding Anne is this So remember, the angel said to her, you must dedicate her to God. So that's what they did. The feast that we celebrate on November 21st is the presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, when Mary is dedicated to God at the Temple of Jerusalem. And that's when she was three years old, because Joachim and Anne wanted her to be able to to stay there. Rather than doing it at age two, which is more common, they did it at age three. And so she stayed there for, Mary stayed there for most of her childhood until the age of 14 is when she was betrothed 
to Joseph the Nazarene, which we, who we know about St. Joseph, the, the father of Jesus, Joseph of Nazareth. So lastly, she was canonized St. Anne in 1584, and that, of course, is before our modern-day practice of having the three miracles proven and, and then a saint can be canonized, beatified and canonized, uh, just by virtue of her being the grandmother of Mary who raised Jesus, she was considered a saint in 1584. So later, I'll talk more about the very bottom of your sheet highlights two different devotions, and I'll give you, those are fascinating stories about peasants who had apparitions of St. Anne, and they're beautiful, beautiful stories. So I'll give you those stories later in the talk, but right now we're going to hear from Caitlin about her, about art history and Caitlin, in case anyone didn't know, is the one who drew this painting. Thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. Um, I am really excited to, to share the iconography of St. Anne with you. She's a particularly fascinating figure. Um, in, her, in the visual representation, because it does have these subtle but very important shifts that say a lot about how the, the image of her and her story evolved after her life. So first, what is iconography? So iconography is the science of identification, description, classification, and interpretation of symbols, themes, and subject matters in the visual arts. So as we attend Mass every day, we're surrounded by these beautiful images that to us are read as Mary, Jesus, the saints, the angels. And the reason we know is because we're able to read the language of those iconographies and decode them and say that these are these representatives. Um, and that's something very special, and it's, in, it's important in our devotion to recognize these figures and their iconography, the use of the images and symbols, portrays important things about them. And as we will see with St. Anne, it portrays how different movements and ideals about her and about Christian motherhood transformed her iconography. There are Saint Anne actually was not depicted that much before the 1400s. Her iconography, her visual representation, was really restricted to the beautiful passage that was shared about Mary's conception. Um, that the angels came and spoke to them both, and a common image that we see in this period, although they're very rare, is more. Um, common that you would see her husband than you would see St. Anne, but this is one I picked from the Renaissance era just because I think it's a particularly beautiful image, but pre-Renaissance, these are the types of images you would see, and they were called Golden Gate images. Um, the, other, the, the other rare image that surfaces in the pre-Renaissance um, representation is the birth of Mary. Um, as we move to a very exciting time in terms of artistic production and also um, understanding and representation of St. Anne is the 1400s and the 1500s, where we start seeing Anne take no, no longer just be something, uh, someone who appears seldomly, but has more of a role. 
And during this period, the cult of her arises as the idea of her as this great mother who was so formative in Mary's personhood. And Mary brought that personhood and that the building blocks that Anne gave to become the great mother that she was to her son. So she becomes more of an agent than an accessory in a composition. And then in the 1600s and 1700s comes in the St. Anne that we all know and love and we see all over um, the church, which is St. Anne, the great mother and the great teacher. She becomes an active agent in the formation of Mary's beliefs and leads Mary to be the, the, the woman and leader she soon will become. Oh no, these are these are. Um, I tried to pick important paintings from each different time period. So over here we have this great Italian tempera work. Um, in the middle is from the Dutch Renaissance, and you can actually see this piece in person at the National Gallery. So I please encourage you to take a trip in and see. Um, and then the last one is at the, actually the Prado Museum in Spain, and it's by a famous Spanish artist who actually did a treatise on how to paint these kind of figures. Who was he? Murillo. So once again, this is the type of early imagery. We can see the angel. Um, speaking, uh, blessing both the figures and letting him know the miracle that will happen of Mary. Since we already discussed this passage, we can move on to the next one. And this is really exciting. My, unfortunately, my German is not very proficient, so you'll have to excuse me if I butcher it. But, um, and if anybody speaks German, please let me know how to say it correctly. Um, Anna Selbertrit, and it means Anna Meeks. Three. And it starts this new trinity, the trinity of kinship, that we start to begin seeing the artworks. When um, we first see these types of statuettes for individual um, devotion happening around um, 1100 to 1200, it is just Mary with um, Jesus. However, as Anne begins, her role begins to be reevaluated with a more humanistic perspective developing and begins to join and it's Anne makes three. And as we can see it's kind of a little bit of a Russian doll composition. They're all seated on her lap. She is what they all stem from. It is the grounding foundation kind of the where the humanity arises. Um, she, they're all staring forward. They're not really engaging with one another. This soon changes the dynamic as Anne becomes more viewed as this, this agent of change and transformation. So in the, the one right before the pivotal change, you see that they're more turned into each other and Jesus is carrying a book. Um, this, and Anne is gesturing to it. This leads to the most important change, which is that Anne is actually bringing the scripture to them. Um, in the Middle Ages, women begin to have more literacy and study the Book of Hours. And in the Renaissance, they become bigger patrons of these illuminated manuscripts. And 
used them for their worship, and it was very important, and they saw that Anne was a great model for the mothers at the time to pass on literacy to their daughters and their children so that they could be in the faith as well and kind of start that early as um, Anne had to with Mary. So, these are two very famous works that I'm sure that you've seen before. Um, they're, as you can see, they're two different iterations from like this, um, from the Renaissance early and late, and we can see really the transformation of St. Anne in just this brief period here. So you have in the Renaissance, as we have in actually structures in real life, a triangle or a pyramid is the strongest, most stable um, shape in the world. So these type of dynamic triangles were formed um, within religious compositions. And we can see that St. Anne is at the top of this particular triangle, which marks a shift from her, from before she would just be absent, and it would just be this image of just the virgin and child. In Leonardo da Vinci's image, we see that Saint Anne, the child, um, Jesus and Mary, are part of this interaction. It's dynamic, they're exchanging glances, they're in, uh, um, the child is interacting with a lamb, and it's more, it's showing that there's more of an exchange here of ideas and that the relationships were more formative instead of these stoic figures looking outward. Um, in Spain, in the 1600s, was the first place where we started to see the Anne not just gesturing to, to Buck or or hold, cradling gently, but actually actively teaching. And this is a major shift, that here we have the grandmother of Jesus taking a very active role in the formation of Mary, and that it is not hinted at or a subtle, or a subtle action, but rather it is very direct. Um, and it was actually written by Murillo that, that this was how mothers should be, and that's why Anne should evolve into this role. And that Mary, instead of being shown as just a young child, they should actually show Mary around age seven, so that she could be at the age of reason and able to receive all that um, Anne was teaching her. So, hopefully you recognize these two wonderful examples of St. Anne. And I thought that it would be fun to open up the floor and hear some of your observations on these two figures, especially if you can see any of the changes exemplified in these compositions. Would anyone like to share? Absolutely. 
And we can see that because this is something that only started happening in the 1600s, the active finger to page, the woman being this active agent, because it's true that in society women were beginning to take this role, that they before were not as like patrons of the arts and also more active in the religious education of their children in the way of procuring uh, these manuscripts and teaching from them. Yeah, I think it's important also just to draw the distinction between the depiction and the actual events that took place yeah. in Anne. Um, because I would say that in that time when Anne's raising Mary, she is doing that. It's just that the art isn't necessarily reflecting it until later. Exactly. So she had to actually teach her at a much earlier age because she had to give her over but, at three. I mean, the, the general nature of Exactly. It doesn't start at age seven. <laughs> they just in the 16s and 1700s they labeled that age the age of reason, and so in this more humanistic, what they thought more logical perspective, they wanted to show something that aligned more with those philosophies of the time, which in the end. I think are actually truer to St. Anne because it should be shown that she was teaching from a young age. Not, and I agree, not just before, before the age of reason, but it's good that this iconography shifted instead of when we were looking at in pre-1400s that she was not any active agent and then fi early 1500s more decorative in like forming, forming that stabilizing period, pyramid. So... I think it's a good shift on how she is who we see her as. I'm not sure if I see correctly. Okay. But it kind of seems to me that in the second one, St. Anne has a more focused vision, facial expression, whereas in the first one, she's like more relaxed. That's that so. I think that's true, and it is something that I found when I was looking at a bunch of paintings um, and sculptures that some St. Anne is very focused in her energy and, and showing Mary the way, and other, it's more of a serene act. Like, she is allowing Mary to be the more active agent of her own education. Is it possible, maybe not now because I don't know where your lecture is going, to go back to the one on Leonardo da Vinci. Absolutely. And, and the mother and child. Yeah, right here. It's perfect. Now, is that, is that Mary with Jesus and her mother? Yes. Okay. Okay. And the lamb. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Leonardo was the, kind of the first one to really put them in this kind of Arcadia instead of a more typical um, icon type of landscape that is, you know, with the angels. He, he's portraying them more as the, the, the human side, them as a human family interacting. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And that's the same with the one that's in, in Florence. Same type. Yes, this is the one in the Uf Uf Uffizi Gallery. Excellent eye. <laughs> okay, thank you. Just, just one other point. Um, yeah. 
related, but when you were saying the triangle is the strongest shape, it, yes. maybe remind that uh, the Star of David is two triangles interlocked. And so it's, you know, one set representing the Father, one representing the Son. When you bring them together, you've got that third sign, which is the Holy Spirit and the, the Star of David. So thanks. I was just thinking that when you, when you It's amazing how geometry can have that significance, and especially in the Renaissance, we were beginning to see this with those steady triangles. Um, That's why Leonardo da Vinci became obsessed with the golden ratio as well, because it was just expanding upon that type of perfect symmetry and perfect geometry. I was noticing also that the change in the format of uh, of the scripture in the statue on the left is the scroll. So that's at the time when the, the sacred scriptures are in the in the, the synagogues and you know, only accessible to the rabbis. And the finger on the right, the uh, the codex has come out. Uh, the scriptures are printed, so that's when people have access to the scriptures and the teaching. Exactly, and you can see the shift, and that they've actually. Um, looked at the shift in the images coincides with when women started collecting more books and becoming becoming these patrons and commissioning these little books of ours to um, worship from. So I'm... uh, Thank you so much for letting me share with this with you. Church downtown, 
And we also um, did a frame for a couple of Supreme Court justices. So we do a lot of interesting, cool work. Primarily when we're doing conservation work, we care more about honoring the age and the integrity of the piece. But when we are making a frame from scratch for a particular artwork, we get to exercise a little bit more um, artistic license. So, because uh, this painting is about St. Anne, St. Mary, and our wonderful church, I wanted to try to incorporate some symbology that pertains to St. Anne. And so I decided to focus on the lily. And it just so happens that we have a beautiful relief of a lily outside in the church, right on the <coughs> altar rail. We have a lily. And using that as a model, I, again, we started with the bare wood. And then we applied the gesso, which is on that angel wing. And then when the, wet, the, when the gesso was just a little bit damp, I incised a design of the lily that is seen on our altar rail. And, um, and then I gilded just the lilies and the side edge to just kind of draw your eye into the painting but not overpower it. We want the main star of the, of the, of the whole piece is to be the artwork. So we created this very neutral wash, which is timeless and hopefully integrating with the limestone that we have in our church. The design itself is kind of a modernist interpretation of a um, neo-Gothic style, which is also mirrored here in the architecture of our church. Even though our church is celebrating 150 years, this building is mid-20th century, so this is a, an example of that kind of reduced form and less ornamentation. But if you're at the museum the next time, take a look and see if you can identify some of the symbology that is uh, pertaining to the painting. So if you were looking at a, a portrait of a general, you might in the frame see examples of uh, cannons or eagles or... Um, you might see, for a, a, a morning frame, you might see forget-me-nots. So it just depends, and it's kind of fun to look at the painting and see how the framer incorporated those little elements from the painting into the frame itself. And you can also see when it's not so successful. Not everything that is in the museum is framed appropriately, and so it's kind of fun to get an idea. Was that actually original the piece, or was this added later on by a curator that was just going for a particular aesthetic? So I guess if there's any other questions, I'm happy to answer. But yes. I wanted to ask the other day, actually, when did you, or how did you get into framing? Uh, I have a sculpture background, so essentially making, this is all handmade. We don't, it, we're different from other frame shops where you go and they have all this molding and you just pick something. We make everything by hand. So it's essentially a sculpture because just like uh, making furniture or making anything else, we are actually pushing the lumber through, we, we cut knives to fit, to fit this profile. We have that, and we put it in our blade, and we push the lumber through, and we come up with that design. So we have the bare wood. And I'll just, I have another just very simple frame that you can pass around. So then we put the gesso, which is this material here. Um, yes, yeah, so this is kind of a combination of plaster of Paris and, and glue, or, or whiting, really. And, this is what then you apply a bowl to, which also prepares our surface for the gold. 
because if you were to just put gold on this bare wood or just the gesso, the gold is so, so thin that it would actually telegraph through. So it's, it's essentially a primer. And let me see if I just have a little thin pots around this box. These are just little flecks, and you can see just how thin the material actually is, and it's, it's very tricky to work with. So um, that's how I got my start, and then I learned gilding just on the job you know, five years ago. So it's very, very meditative. It's, you must have a lot of patience. Gold uh, reacts poorly if it's very dry, if it's very staticky, so we try to wear natural fibers. And if you're giggly or you breathe really heavily, you're going to see, you're going to blow that gold all over the place. So it's very important to have kind of a zen-like approach when you, um, when you gild. Uh, we're Goldie Studios. We are in Tupac Circle. We're behind the Society of the Cincinnati. And um, yeah, we're happy just, uh, I don't know if I have any cars, but look us up. There is a old Goldie Studios where our studio used to be, but uh, we're right down the street from the Phillips Collection. How long does it take you to do this? Uh, well, this frame maybe took, uh, if I worked on it nonstop. So, Maybe two weeks. Uh, more, more ornate frames can take 12 weeks. Um, there are stages of drying. You know, you, you can't, when you first have the, the raw wood, you have to apply several layers of this gesso. Um, ideally six to eight or even more, just depending on the level of ornamentation you're gonna be doing. Um, usually anything earlier than the 18th century would have been hand carved. Then after that, we start to use um, a composition material for our ornamentation. So it just depends. This particular one, guess it's it's not gilded everywhere. It's just gilded on the side edge and on the lily. It didn't take as much time. Uh, just a quick question. I'm just thinking of like the, the industry of framing and such a stock. Yeah. I know that you know it, goes, like, it must go back a long way. So, uh, but, but uh, yeah. The, I guess the, the question is, like, what's the the kind of uh, most amazing uh, that you've ever seen? Kind of like the staircase in, uh, you know, the one that supposedly like maybe Joseph built, right. but they still yeah, kind of explain. Yeah. Like standing, right. you know? yeah. Are there, do we have any equivalents in the framing? We we actually do. So yeah. when you think back to the first frames, as long as art's been on the move, they've been frames because they needed something to separate it. And since we're in the church, we'll talk about that. A lot of uh, frames really, really began their life in churches. And so whenever you're looking at Gothic examples or Renaissance examples, you're seeing huge tabernacle frames with you know a whole altar with several windows depicting apostles and you know with the arched gothic so there are some really incredible examples all over Europe less here in the United States but again the um, National Gallery of Art has some incredibly huge large we just recently restored one for the Feast of the Gods a couple of years ago and it's in a huge rotunda in the, in the East Gallery and that was an incredible piece so you were asking a little bit about the, the methods. They haven't, we're conservators. So our goal is to honor the age and integrity of the piece. 
So our methods are completely reversible as all conservationists. They, anything they do has to be reserved, uh, reversed. We never want to do anything to an antique that would uh, put our hand into the piece. Again, we're just there to stabilize, make sure it looks like it's age. If it's a 17th century piece, we want it to remain that way. And so it's just very important to think about that and not overdo it. I, when I lived in France, framing was very helpful. Absolutely. I, I thought of studying and I ended up doing cooking. Oh, amazing. <laughs> but it was between cooking and framing and it was just very revered. and was like, it's an art form. You study it. And Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because it, you can actually see the difference between, and this is not always the same, it's, it's a generalization, but the French gilders care just as much about the carving of the frame then as, as, the, as the gold. Italian gilders and framers tend to focus on making it gold and making it shiny, and they care less about the play of gold. So, for example, the gold here, when it comes out, it's actually matte. So you would want to gild or burnish the highlights, so basically polish the highlights so it's drawing your attention. And in a, and I, sorry, I don't have any examples, but in a heavily ornamented frame, and here you can kind of see the same thing, you see these kind of shiny areas? Those are areas that have been polished or burnished. And so with the French carvers and, and gilders and framers, they were really, they had all of these little, and I think I have one here, a burnisher. And they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And you can get into the little, here you can pass that around, little nooks and crannies. There are burnishers for, for uh, burnishing angel wings. So you would want like a flatter stone. Usually it's agate, or sometimes it's a tooth of an animal that eats flesh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that using flat, that flat, you can really get in there and shine it. But if you want to get like really inside a little crack, you would use a very, very pointy one. So you saw that there's all kinds of tools. Seemingly not the same thing, but very, very specific and, and niche. Where you went to school? I went to the University of Maryland. I'm local. I'm from the area. I live in a neighborhood, and this is my parish. So. <laughs> One question for Katie. How long did it take you to do the painting? I don't remember. <laughs> on the painting, not, not the time. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you for having me, and thank you so much for letting me frame your wonderful painting, and just oh, final an word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Why is it that the uh, Maddie is, people make it seem like it's so mysterious. They, they will not teach you. I've heard in art schools, they don't teach people. Right. What is the secret of that? Well, so matting is a very, I mean, anyone can create a mat, but to make a good mat is quite difficult. Uh, uh, when you're cutting a mat, a lot of times an amateur will overcut the mat, so you'll see like these little smile lines in the corners of the mat. That's not a good mat job at all. 
uh, someone that's a very good <coughs> math specialist is incredibly precise and very, very attention detailed. And usually they tend to be like paper people. They're very methodical. Very different from sculptors. We like to bang things up and get things dirty. The mystery behind the mats is that nowadays we know that the mats that they used to use in the old days included a lot of acidity and they were actually damaging the artworks. Nowadays we use acid-free mats and so uh, almost all of you, if you open up a picture that you have that's 50 years or older, if you open it up you'll see that it will leave a brown kind of shadow around it or sometimes you'll see little marks that look like mold but that's referred to as foxing and that means that literally that acid is eating away at the paper. So as conservators, we also work with other conservators. We, we, right now, we have a client that has a Raoul Dufy painting. It's a watercolor. And again, it was framed in the 50s. And so that particular frame has a linen liner on it, has been destroying the artwork. So we wow. work with another paper conservator that is remediating that piece. But there are also examples of gilded mats. So they, the, the, you mentioned the luminaries, you know, the yeah. same methods that they use to illuminate the books and um, the edges of books would be the same method used in the gilding and that. And that, again, is to bring <coughs> that little bit of shimmer that will hopefully draw your eye into the piece. And not, not all mats need that, but that is a, a device that's often employed. And there are other, I mean, you can even do um, the glass mats. That's usually Art Deco or those St. Menon's etchings. Those would have painted mats that are also gilded. So there's a lot of different examples. I think a lot of people are like, oh, they, you can buy it at Michael's and you can buy it all there. Yes, that is a mat. But it can, like everything else, be taken to that next level, be taken to the level of art. one to learn people keep it in, like it's yeah. a secret. Yeah. Well, yeah. we do workshops from time to time. So <laughs> if anyone, actually, we make uh, we make something like this, and we do this graffito granito. I don't know if you saw the detail, but there's a little flower that you can inscribe in there, or whatever design you want. So, yeah, you can absolutely tie your hand at it. Because they were pulling from the thread that the 
nuns have put in. Oh, and that was just makes her hair stand up on it. Just think about it. There was recently an article, actually, just yesterday, saying that they are re opening the case so right. that they can actually look at the other areas of the shroud that were not affected by the fire damage. Right. Right. And the reason I bring it up is because I also have a holy phase from the Turin Shroud prayer oh, wow. that I want to leave uh, anyone who's free to take. Oh, that's nice. So Thank you for doing that. Well, it's it's funny. We actually, sometimes with conservation, sometimes with conservation there's a little bit of detective work that needs to be done. A lot of times we'll get a frame for conservation that's, say, from the 1800s, and someone, again, trying to fix it will just paint it with bronze paint. They, don't, they didn't have the money to use gilding, or they didn't have the material, they didn't know what they were doing. And so when we are working on a piece like that, we try to remove the piece, but we always want to try to save the original. And so we then make little tests, and we uh, determine what kind of gold they use in the area. And what the, the, the bowl, the clay that is applied to the gesso, that also gives us clues as to where it was made. So, I mean, if we know we're working on a painting that was from the Civil War, and we look at that bowl, if we see a, a, a bowl that's black, we know that that's not right. From that period, it would have been like this chestnut color, this plum color. So that also helps us to know when a piece is authentic, if it's right, or maybe it wasn't made where we thought it was made. So. Having that ability to trace and look at these materials and, and extract uh, the pieces helps us learn and hopefully, again, do the right thing by the piece. So, that's it. A question to ask this young lady to tell us more about her painting. So, um, um, so the, I guess I'll talk a little bit about my painting. So I was, like, for me, Sam as the mother was very important to me. And I, like, feel, um, so that's why I depicted her in kind of, like, the present day Sam. Um, type, and also the, with the coloring of both um, Mary and St. Anne, though I drew more upon the colors used during the Renaissance and her coming coming through and being part of um, our church and with like her bringing the divine light to us. So that's the Is this the rainbow? Oh, it's like the in. Um, many like paint, uh, paintings and especially like really early ones so it's kind of a little bit more like naive I'm showing directly like divine light that she's bringing to the church so it's like the rays of the sun are translating to divine light through her that are hitting the church oh and this arch is from um because I was inspired by one of the sculptures. So it's the arches that you find the St. Anne's within arches. You have it in your picture. Uh, the, yeah. The, uh, yeah. That's the, the, yeah, the one on the outside. Yeah. yeah, the mm -hmm. arch. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Oh, and it's an oil painting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll have time.
time for a little, few more questions at the very end. I just want to make sure we get kind of almost in a way the most important part, which is how we ask St. Anne's intercession and our devotion to her. If you ever want to make a pilgrimage to, to, to honor St. Anne, there are two very fascinating stories that I'll tell you a little bit about. St. Anne Doré is in France, and you can see this basilica right here. It's in the northwestern quadrant of France, which is called Brittany. So the story goes that in 1624, there was an apparition of St. Anne to a peasant, and his name was Eve, and she said to him, I am Anne, mother of Mary. There was a chapel built here before that was dedicated to me. I ask you to build it again and take care of it because God wants me honored here. So what she was referring to is there was a chapel that was built in the 6th century, but that was destroyed by the time, by the 1600s. And so Anne was asking Eve to rebuild it. He didn't follow through. He didn't take her seriously for a year. And then in 1625, she appeared to him again. And Eve saw a candle burning on the site of where she wanted the chapel to be built. And villagers also saw that candle. And they were asked to, to dig, and they found a statue of St. Anne buried underneath the site, and so they took that as a sign that we should we should build this chapel. And ever since, so then the Bishop of Vannes, which is the bishop of this region of France in Brittany, decided that those apparitions were credible, and so the chapel was built, and it started as a chapel, and as you can see based on this map, it is now a basilica. It was named a minor basilica in 1874, and to this day there are three daily masses said at this basilica, which I had the privilege of traveling to France earlier this month, and I had a lot of trouble finding daily masses in small cities like this. It's not very common. The, the daily masses we have here are a distinct privilege, honestly, because you know hours aren't posted or masses are not celebrated often during the week. It's usually only during the, the weekends in, in these small, small cities. Um, so having three daily masses tells you that there are tons and tons of pilgrims who go and visit this apparition site. So that's St. Anne, patroness of Brittany, and she's nicknamed there the grandmother of the Breton, the Bretons. That's kind of their, their name for themselves. And also, so and that's in a way why we have pain du chocolat, croissant over here so just to kind of have that French influence um, and then also Saint-Anne de Beaupré yes this next thank you Caitlin this next map you've been there oh you'll have to tell us you'll have to tell us about your experience that's beautiful in Quebec yes exactly um, this is on the back um, so um, Monsignor gave me a stack of St. Anne materials and I found this in it. It says leave this in the pew, so I don't know how we got it, but it has, it has a picture of the basilica that's in Beaupre, Canada, which you can see passed around. Um, thank you, Michael. Um, in 1650, the story goes that sailors from Brittany, so they knew about this devotion to St. Anne because they were from Brittany. And they were sailing, and they were overtaken by a storm on the St. Lawrence River in, in Canada, right, right there. And they prayed to St. Anne, saying, if, 
she saved them wherever they landed they would build a chapel dedicated to her and it just so happened that they were saved and everyone was living by the end of the storm and so they had landed in Beaupre, Canada and that's where they built a chapel and again it turned into what is now a shrine so yeah mm -hmm. so and you see that book which can give you a little bit of an example of what it looks like. And so, and then more on a personal level, I want to show you something that um, I considered kind of a small miracle, which is when I was packing to travel to Brittany, France, which I went to for a, for a wedding, um, I was looking for something in one of my drawers, and I came across a medal to St. Anne de Beaupré, which is... <laughs> what we're talking about right now, and I cannot tell you where this came from. I don't know where it came from. My mother doesn't know where it came from. Um, and it has a relic of her on the inside, so I just wanted to pass that around so you could. There are two other medals, St. Cecilia and Mary the um, Miraculous Medal, but the, the one on top is St. Anne. So if you want to hold that and say a prayer over it, you're more than welcome to. That's my little mini miracle from her. It happened right before this trip to to France. So she I took that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I took her everywhere with me that I that I went and um, I was praying for, for today that today we would recognize St. Anne in the way she wanted to be recognized and that you know this devotion to her would spread and that we ask her intercession and um, I just think it's a great sign that she loves us very much and wants to bless us through through Jesus, her grandson. So Thank you, Susie and Caitlin, for adding so much to, to this presentation. Yes, you have a question. <coughs> okay, I used to come uh, on the first Friday there to an all-night visual here. Mm -hmm. I had to get used to it because I was sleeping. We stayed from uh, 8 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the morning. Well, there's mm -hmm. one particular uh, uh, night there. All the parishioners and all the people that came, they were sitting over there in front of Mother Mary's statue. Well, I got in there, and I was sitting in front of St. Anne's statue. I was over there all by myself. And all of a sudden, I thought I heard her speaking. And like, this is my church here, and you're all sitting over there in front of Mary. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I thought I heard her speaking there, and, and, and so I was trying to tell them to come on over there, but then she stopped. And then, and then I, and it, I could maybe it was a recorder there, but there was nobody around there. And so I just wanted to That's mention that. That's an incredible story. <laughs> so we will have to continue to honor Mary in our prayer, or I'm sorry, St. Anne in our prayers to ask for intercession for all that she wants to give us. So. Final reminders are um, the candles. If you still want a candle with, with St. Anne teaching Mary, um, Mary Margaret over here has kindly offered to help facilitate that. And a copy of the tapestry. And now I believe it's downstairs. Yes, yes it's downstairs in the. In the yeah. And if you really liked this event and you're not already receiving our emails about upcoming events at the parish, this sheet is here for you to put your name and email if you want to receive those. If you don't have time and you just want to throw a business card on the table, I can get that too. But um, this is for anyone 
And then also in the middle here, these are metals. I only have two because we actually don't sell these here. The center, uh, the Catholic Information Center sells these, and they're going to be selling them on our 150th anniversary mass, which is on October 20th of the 11 a.m. mass. So please mark that on your calendars. Um, but this is a medal of St. Anne. If you wanted to have a little medal with a prayer card, we'll be selling those on October 20th. And the same thing with this beautiful plaque of St. Anne.